Hi, this is Amanda. And this is Lindsay. We're True Creeps. Where the stories are true. And the creeps are real. We'll cover stories from grotesque gore. To the possibly plausible paranormal. To horrifying history. To tense and terrible true crime. And everything else that goes bump in the night. We want you to join us while we creep. We cover mature topics. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, everybody. Welcome to our 14th True Crime Digest update. Yeah, it's been a while. It's been a minute. I believe our last one was, what, May? June? 17 years ago? Suddenly, I'm now basing on it. (laughs) It's been a moment since we've had a True Crime Digest update. We're going to start with the cases that we've been covering more regularly, and we're going to then talk about some older cases that we've discussed previously, but we're going to do a recap on those, mainly just so that you remember what's going on, because we were ourselves like wait it's been a minute since we've looked at this what is this one again and the cherry on top today is that we're going to talk about Jamine Ramsey because there is some interesting news about that case and we're going to talk about that last and if this is your first time listening to us because you saw Jamine Ramsey and was like I need a new podcast to listen to welcome also we do have some other new listeners that we've picked up since we've done some of these true crime digest updates originally so we figured it's time to do some recaps especially since things are moving yeah well the first one we're going to talk about today is daniel robinson and it's officially been over a year since daniel disappeared while working in buckeye arizona he was last seen june 23rd of 2021 now daniel's father david is still keeping the story out in the news and online and everywhere he could He's still working hard to find clues, organizing searches, and doing various interviews. And he's also, which made me really sad, still pushing for help from the FBI. And I'm also going to say his website again, because I think everyone should go to it when they have a chance. PleaseHelpFindDaniel.com is still running and still being updated. And from what I saw, David is also running a Zoom meeting every Thursday at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. So if you ever want to see what's going on, or if you want to volunteer some of your time, head over to their website. And there's various opportunities to help, even if you don't live in Arizona. Yeah. We'll also post the link to his website in our show notes as well. And the biggest update we have is David is now entering a new phase in the search. And he says that his concentration will now be on the forensics that wasn't done at the scene. That's so heartbreaking that he's shifting focus from finding him to finding out what happened to him. Yeah. And the fact that he's the one that has to do this at all, you know, like you would think that this is what should have been done, right? One of the things that we're going to talk about over and over today is an abundance of issues with crime scenes. Yeah, it's really sad. And the fact, too, is David doesn't live in Arizona. So like he's having to stay in Arizona to keep this going. And that's why we think it's really important to discuss him whenever we can just to help out a little bit because... Little by little, his case, now that it's a year old, is getting drowned by new things, right? So you're Mm -hmm. not seeing it as frequently. You're not seeing his name as much. And it's really important that we find out what happened to Daniel. And I don't think that many people were seeing his name a lot to begin with. If you haven't heard about his case and you don't know the details, we do have a full episode on it. Yeah. So it's just Daniel Robinson. So it's a little it's easier to find. Right. So our next update for today is the investigation into the death of Jelani Day. So Jelani's family is launching the Jelani Day Foundation, and it'll be a nonprofit used to promote social change, initiate missing persons reform, and provide scholarships to students. On Saturday, August 27, it will launch, and they have an event scheduled already. We didn't see whether it would also be virtual, but it will be held in the Illinois State University Bone Student Center, and apparently it sold out very quickly, which is great to hear. Yeah. 
According to the Justice for Jelani Day Facebook page, the 200 tickets that were available were gone in two and a half hours. And I just saw that was posted earlier today and last night that they will be releasing more tickets coming up. So just keep an eye on their Facebook page if you're trying to get a ticket. Yeah. And so his mother posted what the event will be. And she said that it's going to address what happened this year, what the Jelani Day Task Force has done, what the FBI has done, and how folks can help. And so good things, good movement, but still so sad that she's like that parents are having to do this, that they're having to be these zealous advocates for their children who in this situation, we know that he died because his body was found. Right. But like just the idea that like you're going through this incredible grief. And on top of that, you have to be the person who's pushing for change and justice for your child. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm hoping that somehow they stream it or we can see the event without having to travel. I've noticed that she has streamed a lot of other things and other interviews and events too. So I'm hoping we'll be able to catch this one in August. Absolutely. So we do have another update for Hugo Osario Chavez. And just the briefest recap, eight to 40 bodies are estimated to have been found at an ex-cop's house who is Hugo Osario Chavez. Some reports confirmed that there are only eight. Others say that there are as many as 40. So it's still undetermined. He was arrested in May of 2021 for the murder of two women. There appears to have been a murder ring that has been operating for more than 10 years. Chavez was previously arrested for sex crimes, and he confessed to murdering the two women who were a mother and a daughter. Police searched his home after the confession and found other bodies. So he didn't say there were more, but they just happened to find more. Yeah. The pits where the bodies are, are so deep that it seems like he must have had at least one accomplice. And arrest warrants for 10 other suspects have been issued. And as of now, there appears to be the remains of at least three children, nine, seven, and two years old. Disgusting. Absolutely. The director of police, Mauricio Arisas Chicas, said that Chavez was fired in 2005. Per Chicas, quote, he told us that he found victims on social media and sought them out luring them with the American dream. Get fucked. Right? It's awful. Just everything about this is awful. There's so many bodies. Yeah. So police believe that most of his accomplices have been arrested, which is good news. Prosecutor Max Muniz said DNA tests will be used to ID the remains. And prosecutor Graciela Sagastumi told press, quote, the central access to the investigation is sexual violence. Now, as for the updates, the trial for Chavez began on June 8th, and we haven't heard the verdict yet, so we're waiting for that. But the attorney general said that the court could impose a maximum sentence of 50 years for each murder. So we will not be seeing him again, luckily. Yeah. Well, and what's also interesting, too, is when we were researching this particular case, there's not a lot of sources available in English, which I find fascinating because you would think that this would be more widely covered in the United States, just because like anytime you have someone who has killed multiple people, I feel like it's shared. And this isn't. And even honestly, when searching, like I didn't see many Spanish speaking articles as well. Like there wasn't a lot of data about the actual case itself in most sources, which I thought was interesting. That's interesting for, you know, Mexico, I would say. But like, I don't know if you noticed this, but at least my opinion, the United States doesn't give a fuck about what's going on anywhere else most of the time. You're right. Like it's not shared as much. And when there's tragedies, it's like a blip. 
That's fair. That's fair. We're going to talk about another case, which also did not have a lot of coverage. And I was like, but this is fucking wild. Yeah. So how is everyone not talking about this? But no, that is true. You know, in America, there's like a blinder. We're a little conceited here. Yeah, we're a little self-absorbed. Woof. So we also have an update on the murder of Molly Bish. And as a recap for her murder, she disappeared on June 27th of 2000 when she was working at her local pool. Then three years later, her remains were found just five miles from the pool in a shallow grave. Throughout the investigation, it started with local police, then it moved to state police, and then the FBI joined the investigation. But that didn't happen until 2012. And they offered the assistance of probably my favorite law enforcement agency, the Behavioral Analysis Unit, partially because of an intense love for criminal minds. Which is coming back. Very excited. And so they, but again, so they joined the case in 2012. And there have been several suspects in the case, all of which had a history of rape. Starting in June of 2021, investigators started looking into Francis Frank P. Sumner Jr. Now, he had died in 2016, but he had been convicted of aggravated rape and kidnapping. And additionally, a source had reached out to the family and suggested that perhaps he was involved. Immediately, the family turned around and reached out to law enforcement, but it took years for them to actually follow up on the lead, which is insane. Wild. And so what they did was they collected familial DNA from Sumner's family. Now, the update we have is that that DNA wasn't a match to Frank Sumner. And obviously, her family is very disappointed because it really seemed like it could have been him. Yeah. Witnesses place a man who had like dark hair driving a white car there and around the area both the day before and the day of the murder. And with his past criminal record, it really seemed like he would have been a good fit for the perpetrator here. But unfortunately, he wasn't. And I mean, not surprisingly, her family is devastated, including her sister, Heather. Like, I'm sure they just want answers, you know? Yeah. You want to know what happened to your loved one. You want to know the story and just kind of let you put it to rest, too. Like, I know everything. I know every detail. I know that the person was caught or, you know, has died or whatever it may be, but you know the end. And at this point, they don't. Yeah. Well, and also, I feel like sometimes when they find the perpetrator years and years later, one of the things they'll find is they'll find additional evidence. Like they'll find things that belong to that person or photos or, you know, anything like that. And knowing that that could exist out in the world, I don't think like I could stop, have closure. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think I could stop. Like I think it would just haunt me. Consume you. And that's what's happening with so many of these. Oh, yeah. And like, fortunately, I haven't been in that position before, but I just it, it hurts my heart to think like you're waiting for that other shoe to drop because it's not just closure that you're going to get. It might be hearing the terrible details of something that happened to somebody you love. Right. Speaking of terrible. Yeah. Speaking of terrible. So the next one we're going to talk about, we haven't talked about since True Crime Digest 5. So that tells you how long it's been. But we do have some updates for Andres. And when we covered it, we had introduced him as a serial killer in Mexico City that law enforcement was only identifying at the time as Andres. And now we have a last name, Mendoza. He's 72 years old. And on June 12, 2021, investigators said that they had found 3,787 bone fragments underneath the concrete floors under various rooms of his home. What an astounding number of pieces to find. Yeah, it gives me like Gacy vibes, but he didn't disarticulate them in this fashion. Yeah. You know what I mean? So like, I feel like when you hear 3,000, let's let's round it up to 4,000, almost 4,000 bone fragments. What I mean, bone fragments to me sounds like 
Pieces. Pieces. Yeah, like, and that's alarming. And also, if this is the first time you're hearing it, a little bit of spoiler of what he did. Yeah. So law enforcement believes he hacked his victims into pieces, which makes sense if it was all fragments everywhere. They know that his last victim was sectioned and filleted. And talking about that as a human just makes me really upset. And law enforcement has been working to put the skeletal pieces back together to determine a number of victims. So they don't even know yet. So let's talk a little bit about how he was caught. Mendoza was friends with the police commander, Bruno, and his wife, Reina. Mendoza and Reina went on a shopping trip that day. And Mendoza would come to their home for dinner. So they knew him relatively well. Her husband was concerned and looked into him when she didn't come back. Understandable. Police started investigating him in mid-May of 2021. Law enforcement had surveillance footage showing his wife going into the street where Mendoza lived, but not leaving. Bruno confronted Mendoza, and Mendoza denied it and said that she came in just to look around. As one does. Right. Just come into my house, look around. At first, Bruno didn't see anything amiss, but then he called Raina's cell phone, and he could hear it ringing beneath them. I get chills when I hear that. All I think of, and I think I said this when we covered it the first time, it sounds like a movie plot. Like, it totally sounds like a movie plot. It does. It really does. So he found a narrow entrance to a makeshift basement where he saw Raina's dismembered body. Can you even imagine just like... Mm-mm, I don't want to. It's it's so awful. I mean, not that anybody would want to, but like, just the horror of this. Mm-hmm. Mendoza's home was filled with junk, but also items belonging to victims like IDs, women's clothing, cell phones, jewelry, makeup, notebooks, and lists of names and videotapes. There were a total of 91 photographs. There were 28 8mm videotapes. These also, just heads up, they were discontinued in 2007, so they were pretty old. There were also 25 VHS cassettes, which are rare to find after 2016. And then just to note, Mendoza had previously worked as a butcher, which, disgusting. And he rented out other rooms of his home, so they were expanding the search to look under those rooms as well. Mendoza originally confessed to some murders, but when confronted with the notebooks of, you know, the lists of names and everything, he could only remember five victims, which seems really strange because normally, right, like most serial killers are like, I know crazy amounts of details or like there's a reason or something stuck out with most of their victims, right? But this one, he's like, I only remember five. Yeah. So I don't know if that's like a game or if he truly is just that delusional. Bruno's family hired an attorney who pressed law enforcement to investigate for accomplices because given the age and physical condition, he would have needed help. He couldn't have done that alone. Absolutely. So let's get into our updates. Since this case has first come out, Mendoza has been called the cannibal, the cannibal grandfather, the monster of Atizapan, and the cannibal of Atizapan. In late June of this year, there was a documentary that was released, and I've seen where it's called Cannibal Total Indignation or Cannibal Outrage. And what's really interesting is that while the general focus is of this case, part of the point of it was to spread awareness of femicide in Mexico. And the Mexican Supreme Court decided to televise the trial for that reason. And so the documentary follows how authorities caught Mendoza. Also, there's interviews with the families of the victims, and they talk about the femicide in Mexico, but that specifically 
10 to 11 women are murdered daily there. Oh, wow. Just because they're women. Yeah. I mean, there's probably other reasons, but like them being a woman is why they were murdered. So there's a big range on how many victims have been identified. Originally, they thought it was just 17, I believe. And now they're thinking it's 30 to 60 victims. Oh, gosh. Mm -hmm. So during his trial, Mendoza said that he ate them. Oh, no. He admitted that he butchered them and that after he had done that, he shared the meat of the women with his neighbors. Oh, no. Because they were also his neighbors, too. The one that, yes. like, figured it all out. I would Ugh. be throwing up forever if I heard that. Because cannibalism is, like, one of the things that just, like, freaks me the fuck out. But so. Yeah. In addition to this, he admitted that he photographed and filmed them, which they already knew, right? Because they found the photographs and the videos. Right. They found it. But so he explained his process. Oh, no. He said he chose beautiful women. And when they would reject him, he would kill them. So what I had read was translated. So it was a bit disjoint because it was like, you know, Google Translate. Yeah. yeah. And it said that he would scalp them and then stab them in the heart. And I did not see a comprehensive list of his victims. But I did see, in addition to Reina, who we had discussed earlier, there was a woman named Nora, a woman named Bernice Sanchez Olvera. There was a woman named Aline and Gardenia. And then there was also Queen Gonzalez. And so this is still unfolding. So we haven't heard sentencing quite yet. And I think that more is going to come out about this. Yeah. But pretty horrific. Just terrible. Truly just, uh, yeah, I'm just, I'm kind of at a loss for words. It sounds like a horror movie. It does. Every, every step of it. Yeah. Well, as more comes out, we'll update you on that one as well. So the next one we're going to update you on is the West Memphis Three. And as a quick reminder, three young boys, Stevie Branch, Christopher Byers, and Michael Moore, were riding their bikes on May 5th, 1993, and then they disappeared. Their nude and bound bodies were found the following day in a drainage ditch near the neighborhood of Robin Hood Hills. A month later, the West Memphis Three, which includes Damien Eccles, Jesse Miskelly Jr., and Jason Baldwin, were arrested and charged. So we do have an entire episode discussing what happened to them, and then also one that discusses the time referred to as Satanic Panic. So there's Satanic Panic and then Satanic Panic True Crime. Both of those are, I think, an interesting listen because that time was just wild and knowing what happened to the West Memphis Three because of it is just insane. Prosecutors claimed that the murders were part of a satanic or occult ceremony. Now, Damien was sentenced to death while the other two received life sentences in 1994, even though there was no forensic evidence that tied them to the crime. Later in 2005 and 2007, hairs from the crime scene were tested and none of the hairs tested were a match for the West Memphis Three. One hair, though, found on the ligature was a genetic match for Branch's stepfather, Terry Hobbs. Another hair found was a partial match to Hobbs' alibi witness, David Jacoby. However, they both denied involvement. And we'll have a little bit more on them in a bit. On August 19, 2011, the West Memphis Three submitted an Alford or no contest plea for the murders of Stevie Branch, Christopher Byers, and Michael Moore. Prosecutors and defense attorneys settled on these agreements after it became clear the new judge in the case was set to order new trials. And this type of plea allowed them to maintain their innocence, yet pled guilty in exchange for an 18-year sentence and credit for the time served. But I feel like an important part of this is that it does still show that someone was convicted and served time for these murders. Yes. 
which means there wasn't justice for Stevie, Christopher, or Michael. Right. And that, like, as angry as I am for the West Memphis Three, because I am, I'm also, like, livid for the fact that they were like, meh, well, it's fine. And you're going to be angry with me. We're all going to continue to be angry throughout this. Yeah, it's absolutely disgusting. And the fact that they made them plead guilty when they're like, we didn't hurt children is just wild. And then, yeah, like you said, like the three poor baby boys, right, like that don't have justice is heartbreaking. Yeah. And also the West Memphis Three were teens. They were also not adults. No. Like they were like kids. Yes. Yes. So in June, the county circuit court judge, Tanya Alexander, denied a petition by Damien Eccles to have advanced DNA testing done on the ligatures that were recovered from the murders. Weird, right? Like just so weird. Damien is expected to appeal the ruling and is hoping that the Arkansas Supreme Court will be different. I do think it's important to note, too, that we've been talking today, right, about parents having to push for their children's murders to be investigated. How many times do you see someone who was convicted of that murder, who pled guilty, who is pushing for justice for the people that they had supposedly murdered? How often do you see this? You don't. You don't see that. You don't. And it's just another thing to be angry about. But in addition, I'm sure that Damien wants to be exonerated, but also he is working towards justice for Christopher, Michael, and Stevie. Yeah. So the judge told Damien that since he was not in prison anymore, he could not seek relief in the form of DNA testing. I don't understand what the fuck is wrong with this place. Why won't they allow him to fully clear his name? Is it like... Money, pride, ego, are they covering something up? It's just, it makes no sense to me. I think that there are people who genuinely think that he did it and still maintain that. And I do think that people who really bought into satanic panic, they simply cannot let go of it. They, despite the evidence, the lack of evidence... (laughs) (laughs) Despite the lack of evidence, despite all of the information that has come out later about what happened during the satanic panic and how many people went to prison and, you know, all of the issues, which truly it's a fun listen. Satanic panic is my favorite episode we've ever done. But I think that some people are still bought into it and that they simply cannot reconcile anything new with that. It's crazy. And so Damien tweeted about the transcript while his counsel was working on the appeal. And from what we saw in the tweets, the transcripts were unnecessarily difficult to get a hold of. He said that something that you cannot tell from the transcripts is the tone of the judge, that they were smug, arrogant, and dismissive. And he said, like, this is why you should be able to video, live scream, or even like, I would even imagine audio record court proceedings so that there's so much that's lost in just typing words. And I mean, like, how many times have you sent a message to someone and you were like, like, I have sent a friendly message. And then it comes back and they're like, and you are confused because you sent a friendly message. And if that can happen in that situation, I don't see why you would think it wouldn't happen in something as important as our justice system. Yeah. Tone matters. But so, and just another, it's a little bit off topic, but another one of his tweets said, this is how the state handles my case, a case that people all over the world are watching. Just imagine what they are doing in the ones where no one is paying attention. Most innocent people don't stand a chance in hell. That breaks my heart. It makes me like want to angry cry. Yeah, it's true. Just because it is a disgusting truth in our country that in order to get justice, you have to be loud. Uh Uh-huh. And if you have money, even better. And that's disgusting. And we'll talk about it in a minute. But I think 
because of recent events, he's going to have a good backing, right? Yeah, I think he's going to have a good chance. And I think this was a gift. Absolutely. So Damien's defense team said that the ruling was an incorrect interpretation of the law and that there is much more that happens after a wrongful conviction when someone has been released. Yeah. Yeah, which makes sense. I feel like they're not taking into consideration what he lost, right? Like he lost a long part of his life. And I don't know, people thinking that you're a child murderer, right? Like you lost a piece of you when that happens. Well, and also we talked about in the full episode, but when he was undergoing his trial, he had his first child. He was in prison for 18 years, right? He literally missed his child's entire childhood. Yeah, that's horrible. Yeah. And there's so many people who were hurt by this case because people made assumptions about Damien and Jason and Jesse. So many people lost so much because the justice system failed there. Yeah. But so it does sound like the West Memphis Three is going to get some more support coming soon. And we'll we'll talk about that in just a moment. But so only around 20 people were allowed in the courtroom. And there were hundreds of people who stood in line for hours in the heat. So two years ago, Damien asked prosecutors to test the ligatures. And he wanted investigators to use MVAC testing. And in some research from 2020... MVAC testing has been found on average 12 times more accurate than typical swabbing. And guess where we talked about it in our episode on the West Memphis Three. But as a little bit of a recap, MVAC uses a wet vacuum system. So an item is quote unquote vacuumed and the material is collected and it's put into a solution. Then the solution is removed and all the material, including any DNA, is collected by a filter that's transferred to an analysis at a lab. So at first, the state seemed to want to move forward. But after prosecutor Scott Ellington was elected as a judge, the newly appointed prosecuting attorney, Keith Cressman, told Talk Business and Politics in April of 2021 that he would seek a judge's order to destroy the evidence. Wild. Then prosecutors claimed the evidence had been lost or destroyed in a fire. And so if you follow us, you know that generally on True Crime Digest, we talk about Vallow in our subsequent episode. That's going to come next week. But we're going to talk about when you can destroy evidence in that episode. So just interesting note. But it's interesting that they are literally trying to destroy evidence that can exonerate them. Yeah. Ridiculous. Again, like, what are they covering up? (laughs) What do they gain by it? Mm-hmm. And it screams like, the government is acting in bad faith. Like, the fuck? It's just, okay. But so in December of 2021, the evidence that they said had been destroyed in a fire was found inside the West Memphis Police Department's evidence locker room. And they never explained why they said it was destroyed. So fucking suspicious. They're just hoping no one would find it. Like, that's my guess. Yeah, yeah. So In addition, during an interview, Terry Hobbs, Stevie Branch's stepfather, said that he didn't support DNA testing the ligatures and that he hoped that a judge would order the evidence be destroyed in the case. And he said this because he was tired of dealing with the West Memphis Three and their supporters. If you have nothing to hide, like, I know that's not a fair thing to say all the time, but like, this dude, for sure, what are you hiding? For me, my brain is like, a child that I do not know or have a relationship or like have a direct love for, I would want their case to be investigated as thoroughly as fucking possible. Mm-hmm. 
if it was my stepchild, you can bet your bippy I would want to know exactly what happened to them and I would want every single piece of evidence tested. And yeah, it would hurt like hell to have to keep opening up the same wound, but that's how you get justice. And that's what you do for people who you love. Right. And we said it with all the other things that we've talked about today, like the families fighting. This guy's like, throw it away. I'm over it. Fucking bizarre. So obviously we're hoping that the appeal goes through and that they're able to test the evidence and that whoever did this doesn't get to keep living their life Mm -hmm. because they don't deserve to be out free doing things. And also, goodness knows what else they've done. Right. Right. Like if they have been caught after the murders, think of how many people. I mean, because I would imagine if you can do what was done to those children, you don't deserve to be out free walking around. And you certainly aren't a person who is going to do that just once. Yeah. Yeah. If you could do that to children, like you're capable of literally anything. Yeah. And so a little bit ago, we talked about how the West Memphis Three likely are going to have an influx of support. And that's because you may have heard the name Damien Eccles recently because one of your favorite shows, I mean, I feel like it's everyone's favorite show because it should be, Stranger Things has a character that is inspired by Damien. And it's, I mean, he's my favorite this season. Uh, and it's it's Eddie Munson. He's like literally the most lovable character in the show. Yes. Yes. Also, there's like an entire satanic panic like underpinning to the show, which it pairs perfectly. Amanda and I had like released our satanic panic episode in like the late spring. So when the new Stranger Things came out, we were like, satanic panic, we know this. <laughs> <laughs> like we got the we got the inside scoop before it came out. Yeah. I was like chanting satanic panic at my husband. He's like, why <laughs> are you excited? And I was like, I'm not excited about satanic panic. I am impressed at the show for building it without saying it. Right? Yes. It was so good. So good. And talking about future episodes, perhaps keep your eyes peeled for more on that. And also, if you've watched Stranger Things, the way it happens there is very similar into how it happened to Damien and where they were like, you like this, you dress like this. Yes. Your hair looks like this. And it's like, goodness me. Like, how could you think that those things make a murderer? Right. You sound foolish. But anyway, recently on Twitter, Damien tweeted how he was, quote unquote, tremendously honored when he was asked about his feelings of having a character based off of him. And to be honest, if you're the character that that Eddie is based off of, that is a tremendous honor because I can't remember the last time that I've immediately loved a character in a show that quickly. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they did a really good job. And also, Joseph Quinn did an amazing job of being that character. I didn't even realize it was a wig, by the way. I thought that was his hair. It looks so good. Yeah. And with all the new new stories coming up about him, too, and just like how kind he is when people meet him, it just made me love the character more. Yeah. Yeah. We're crossing our fingers for Eddie, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So... We've covered all of the cases we've already talked about before. And now for our only new to True Crime Digest and True Creeps case for today. Yeah, that's John Benet Ramsey. And I feel like every person in the world has heard this name and knows a bit about at least the story. It's been a while, right? Like it's been a while since it's been revisited. So what we're going to do is we're going to do a quick rundown of what has happened with the case. We're not going to go over every single detail, but at least enough for you to understand what's happening and the really exciting news that just came up. And I think it's worth mentioning that this case is fascinating. It's very interesting. If you've listened to us before, you know that we love a good conspiracy. However, there's a lot of cases that haven't been told. If we were going to do an entire episode, we'd rather talk about a case that hasn't gotten as much media coverage. Yeah. 
part of the reason why we want to talk about this is because the update in and of itself, I feel like it's kind of part of this theme of who's pushing for justice. Spoiler alert, it's not law enforcement. Right. So I think that's one of the interesting things and how this kind of ties in to how we've been covering cases for today. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Also, this has been sent to me several times this week by listeners, so I thought it was important to discuss. So let's go back. Early in the morning on December 26th of 1996, John Bidet Ramsey's parents woke up to find that their six-year-old daughter was missing from her bed. And it was fairly early that morning, too. I want to say her dad had a business trip, so it was like earlier than normal. And at that time, I know, like I said, everyone's heard the story or at least knows her face, right? Knows the name. Oh, yeah. And when this happened, I was eight. How old were you, Lindsay? Nine? Nine. And this was on, what, every magazine cover, every news story covered it. There was documentaries, everything you could think of. Well, and there still are. Like, there's still so much coming out about it. But I'll say, too, like, my mom was, like, watching true crime stuff. And, like, I did not have a censored childhood in terms of, like, anything. So I was, like, sitting there watching it with her. And I, like, remember seeing her face on television. And I, like, I remember being like, but she's a kid. Right. That doesn't happen to kids. Yeah. And it was like, I didn't know her, but I was like, oh, I'm a kid and she's a kid. Mm-hmm. What do you mean? Right. And didn't you do a pageant too? I know I did. I did not do pageants. Oh my goodness. What's that picture? Oh, the picture. <laughs> okay. First off, I just need you to know that like I was a child with like legitimate like anger problems and I was a tomboy and I was like chubby starting when I was around nine. You were adorable. Adorable. I was an adorable child, but I started getting chubby around nine and none of these things are correlating with the pageant circuit. And like what I wanted to do is like sit and draw. So I'd have been like, here's my talent. Here's like <laughs> perhaps a not great drawing. Sorry. I'm just, the idea of me in a pageant is just... <laughs> well, what's that picture? It looks like it was a pageant picture. Okay. No, I was in dance for like one era of my life, maybe a year or two. It's the cutest picture ever, though. Oh, it is the cutest picture. Now we have to share it. I look like I'm in armor. It is a picture that is on like a button, like a pin. And I don't know why my parents got like when they were like, we're getting her dance pictures. They were like, we should probably get some buttons. Oh, my God. I should absolutely see if I can find it and like remake it and like sell buttons on myself as a child adorable i did one when i was little i had a trophy it's definitely broken and thrown away oh what was your talent oh i don't know i was like three probably nothing probably like walking have you seen what like a guilty pleasure is toddler and toddlers and tiaras but like they have baby ones where babies are like six months old and they're like in these like floof get-ups and they have like a full face of makeup and a wig on and like sometimes they'll put the flippers in babies so like babies will have like a full set of teeth oh gosh that's terrifying no. And the parent is just walking them around, pointing them at the judges, like a Sarah McLaughlin commercial. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's just the most insane thing. And I'm like, other countries must look at us and be like, are y'all okay? And they're not saying, are y'all okay? But that's the gist of what they're saying. And the answer is no. Yeah. Anyway, let's get back to this. She was fucking everywhere. She was everywhere. She was everywhere. Gorgeous little girl. Just so sad her life was taken so early. Yeah. So there was a ransom note on the stairs demanding $118,000 for her safe return, which is like 
So specific. Very specific. Very odd. We'll talk about that in a minute. The note also warned not to involve police, but Patsy Ramsey called the police as well as friends and family to help with the search. Police arrived at 5.55 a.m. and found no signs of forced entry, but they also did not search the basement. That's important. The basement is where the body would later be found. The investigation overall was an absolute mess. There are many mistakes made. We're not going to talk about every single one, but a few big ones. A couple examples. One being her room was the only place that was like marked off where no one could disturb the evidence at the beginning, while the rest of the house was kind of a free-for-all. So when friends and family arrived, they were roaming the house and potentially destroying the evidence. That reminds me of when we talked about Velisca, the axe murder case. Yes. And the whole town like went tromping through the crime scene because it was like the early 1900s and they was like, forensics, who is she? Everybody's like walking around. Uh-huh. That's like the image I have of this. It's like whim whamsy. Yeah. And they didn't think she was there. They didn't think that there was anything they could disturb. So the Boulder Police Department also shared evidence with family and delayed conducting formal interviews with the parents. So they weren't done in a timely manner. Also, from what I understand, too much information was also shared with the press, which we know that because, as we were saying, every magazine cover, right? Every news station talking about it at all times. Mm hmm. So then fast forward to around 1 p.m. Detectives instructed Mr. Ramsey and a family friend to look around the house and, you know, see if anything's off, anything's different, anything's changed. The first place they went down to was the basement where they immediately found her body. John Ramsey, you know, being a father, picked up her body and brought her upstairs. Of course he did. Mm -hmm. So while he did that, though, this probably destroyed evidence and it also obviously destroyed the crime scene, like disturbed it. Also, that I would just point out, like, I feel like that is a very reflexive reaction. Oh, yeah. And it's not a calculated step. No, I don't think so. Later on, we'll talk about, like, why that's important. But, like, I could see people doing that. Like, of course you would want to, pull, like, pull your baby close. Absolutely. Yeah, I don't, I honestly don't think that that's weird at all. So many believe that the detectives on the scene were not qualified for this type of crime. And they also did not follow what you know, more qualified homicide detectives would have done. And so they're thinking because of that, all of these mistakes were made with more and that could potentially be aiding into why this hasn't been solved. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about what they found about Jaminet's death from the autopsy. So from the autopsy, they could tell that she had died from asphyxia due to strangulation, but that she also had a skull fracture. Her mouth had been covered with duct tape while her wrist and neck had been wrapped with a white cord. And the cord that was around her neck had a tan brown wooden stick that in multiple loops. So like the cord had been wrapped around multiple times and then there was a stick in it. Her torso was covered in a white blanket and there was no conclusive evidence of rape as no semen was found on the body, but parts of her body had been wiped clean and sexual assault could not be ruled out. I also feel like the presence of semen being a, a determining factor of whether there's sexual assault is kind of an outdated look as to whether something had happened. So she had pineapple in her stomach, but her parents didn't remember her eating that. Now, there was a bowl of pineapple that was in the kitchen, so she obviously ate it at some point. And later, investigators would find that on the bowl itself of pineapple, her brother's fingerprints were on it. We're going to talk about so many theories. If you've heard about this case at all, people are like, the brother. But your fingerprints being in a place where you live on a bowl that you perhaps have eaten from don't seem... To me, that's like not even in the realm of put it in a pile of evidence. So there's lots of different theories on this case. We're not going to get into them very deeply because, again, we're doing a high-level overview so we can give you updates and talk about that. We'll update in future episodes, but high level. But so 
the most popular of the theories are that it was a family member. And the reason for this, there's several, is because the ransom note had strange specifics like $118,000. That's the amount that John had received as a bonus that year. Weird. They couldn't conclusively exclude Patsy's handwriting. And in 2006, Boulder District Attorney Mary Lacey took over the case and agreed that the next theory was more plausible. So investigators developed a DNA profile from Touch, which is DNA left behind by skin cells. And in 2008, Lacey released a statement detailing the DNA evidence, and that fully exonerated the Ramsey family. And unfortunately, Patsy Ramsey, JonBenet's mother, died two years before that from cancer. Yeah. So the other main theory, and remember, there's a ton of them, but the other main one is that it was an intruder. And that's because a couple, several reasons, but a few of them were there was a boot print that didn't match any of the families. There was a broken window in the basement. Now, there's a lot of talk around this window, and I saw in some cases that that may have already been broken for a while. But still, that's another... Still an entrance point. And yeah, entry point. DNA from the drops of blood were from an unknown male, and that was found on her underwear. So there were a total of three sources of DNA, her fingernails, her long johns that she was wearing, and her underwear. And all of them say it's an unknown male. Now, this case, again, it's from 1996. It's been going on for a while. So has there been an arrest at any point in this case? Yes, there was Alexis Reich. So Reich was arrested in 2006 after confessing that she killed her accidentally. After, of course, drugging and sexually assaulting Jean Benet. But Reich was dismissed as a suspect after it was revealed that Jean Benet had no drugs in her system. Also, of course, big deal, DNA didn't match the samples. So speaking of those samples, though, they were entered into CODIS. I know we love talking about CODIS in 2003, but still no matches have come up. That's wild to me. Mm -hmm. I would imagine, though, with the amount of press that this case got, if you were this type of criminal, you might change your MO drastically. Probably. I mean, everyone's still talking about it. There's still documentaries being made. There's still interviews being done. Like, There's still podcasts talking about it. little meta. So in 2010, the case was officially reopened with a focus on the DNA samples. There was further testing that led experts to believe that the sample was actually not just from one person, but was from two people. So in 2016, law enforcement announced the DNA would be sent to the Colorado Bureau of Investigation to be tested with more modern methods, which makes sense, right? Because we're talking about a case, you know, in 2016, it's what, 20 years old? Of course, there's going to be better ways of testing. So yeah. Also in 2016, CBS aired a documentary miniseries about the murder that heavily suggested that it was her brother Burke. Which is interesting, right? Because by then, DNA evidence had already excluded the entire Ramsey family. So Burke filed a $750 million lawsuit against CBS for defamation, and the case was settled in 2019. But the terms of that settlement weren't disclosed. So fast forward two years, 2018, when the Golden State Killer was identified and caught using DNA, John, JonBenet's father, started to look and learn more about DNA testing and what new technology could do. And he has been thoroughly pushing to use new DNA technology. And he says that he has asked the Boulder police to test the samples in an outside lab with the latest technology, but he doesn't have a really good rapport with Boulder police because they have always thought that he was involved with the crime. So he doesn't really get along with them because they suspect him. And which I'm like, that's interesting. You're like, hey, can you test my child's like 
the DNA in my child's case and they're like, fuck you. We think it's you. That doesn't that just seems counterintuitive. Not that law enforcement is always doing intuitive things, but that seems specifically like what? Yeah. And it's been a long time that these people have been feuding with him, too. Absolutely. And I think understandably so. He thinks they don't want to work with him because they think it's him. And also, just as a note, remember, Amanda talked earlier about the officers that were originally on the scene that were just way out of their depth. They're still the ones on the same case. So they have something to prove and that they didn't, quote unquote, miss something. And to me, I'm like, no, like, how could you in 1996 do DNA testing that didn't exist? You simply couldn't have. Like, you made a lot of mistakes, but it's not that. Exactly. And that's my thing is like, you know, a lot of people are like, well, maybe they're covering their asses because they made a mistake. And even, you know, as like a a good law enforcement officer, person, whatever, their goal is to solve, you know, the murder, right? Like, and to find justice, especially for a little girl. And admitting sometimes like, oh, well, we didn't have the technology at that time. It's okay you didn't have that technology at yeah. that time. But now that it's there, it's okay to be like, hey, here's something new that we can do. And it it makes them better people, not like, oh, we made a mistake a million years ago. Okay, but fix it. Absolutely. And also, just as a point, you don't get to say that this testing doesn't align with my theories on the case. Therefore, I will not review it. If evidence is going to exonerate a suspect, you should absolutely test that evidence. Uh, yeah. That's just another instance of the state acting in bad faith when it comes to evidence. So John really wants the DNA handed over to people who actually have a proven track record of solving cold cases. And we're actually going to talk about one of them in a moment when we talk about the case update. But I don't judge his distrust in law enforcement and their motives and like how they would choose to go about things. John Ramsey is also petitioning the governor of Colorado to force local police to hand over the DNA samples that have been collected so that they can be tested by a a reputable lab. And so far, he's been met with silence, which is just fucking shitty. And he announced the petition at the 2022 Crime Con, and it's the petition's still up, so feel free to go sign it if you'd like to. But there's not been any update from the governor's office. And last time we checked, 16,000 people have signed it. And just as a note, less than 24 hours ago when we looked at it the first time, it was only 15,000. So it's gaining traction quickly. Yeah. And so additionally, there was a detective that passed away named Lou Smith who had solved many cold cases. And he thought that it was a kidnapping got wrong. His video and audio recordings that he made while investigating were made public in a Discovery Plus doc called Jean Benet, What Really Happened. When he would discuss his intruder theory, he got shot down and it actually made him enemies in the police force. He didn't believe that the Ramses were to blame, so Smith died in 2010, but he gave his daughter, Cindy Mara, a list of the suspects that he had compiled as he investigated over the years. And his daughter, Cindy, she thinks that the killer's name's on that list. Yeah, he was very thorough. And it seemed like that was like his goal. I watched a couple of interviews with Cindy and she was like, he just really wanted to solve this case because he wasn't there initially. He was brought in later. Yeah. And he's like, I really want to solve it. And it's sad that he passed before. Yeah. You know, we could figure anything out. But he did a lot of work, a lot of good work. Yeah, it sounds like it. So let's get to the update now. There's been a lot of talk about a woman named Cece Moore. And Cece Moore's DNA genealogy detective work and research has helped solve 
many cold cases. She is the chief genetic genealogist of Parabon Nanolabs. And if given the chance, Cece is confident that she could identify Jean Benet's murderer. And I know we've mentioned her before on another episode, but she's awesome. I've followed her work on Facebook for a while now, and I am thoroughly impressed every time she shares that a suspect has been charged. It just makes my day when I'm like, oh, she helped that family. Yeah, there's something very delicious about technology that did not exist at the time of the murder. Uh huh. So a killer couldn't have even contemplated not having that there, catching them years later. Yeah. I'll take geriatric murderers over a lack of justice any day. Right? Golden State Killer. Yeah. In his golden years. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, fuck you, dude. Yeah. So she solved over 200 cold cases that dated back to the 60s using this. Incredible. And she initially was helping adoptees find their bio families. And then people started approaching her looking for assistance with criminal cases around 2009. And so when she was asked, how long could it take to catch John Benet's killer? She replied, quote, it might only be a matter of hours before the DNA contributor is identified, which is just wild, right? Yeah. Like there, there could be an answer so quick. So in addition, she has noted that they need to be super careful where they send the DNA and make sure it's given to someone with a good track record. And this is because there's a limited amount of DNA that can be tested and DNA eventually disappears if it's tested too many times. And that's consumptive DNA. Also, given the age of the case, everything has to be very calculated. There can't be mistakes. Yeah. Or, you know, random fires that didn't destroy evidence. Ugh. So this has been on several news outlets this week. Just everyone's talking about it. And like, she's done a few interviews now. Yeah. <laughs> and I've been sent several of them. I like that she's getting loud about it. Like, that's what I'm so fucking excited about is I'm excited about the one-two punch of the family being like, we're looking for a reputable lab to be able to handle this. Uh-huh. Someone tell me a good fucking reason why we can't figure out who killed my daughter. And, th and then a badass scientist stepping forward and being like, hi, I have a proven track record. We would love to solve this case for you. Yeah. Yeah. And she had mentioned in one of the interviews I watched that people are sending her messages and emails and all kinds of ways of contacting her being like, why haven't you solved this yet? She's like, they send me the DNA. I'm happy to. Yeah. One. Well, you know, you and I talked about this like before we started recording, but awesome. I think it's awesome. Let's let's like put some people in fucking prison who deserve to be there. Not like somebody who's like, I don't know, has pot in their pocket. But I feel like the unintended consequence of this is that if you were not loud, your case is not prioritized when it comes to testing. It's true. Yeah. And it's just such fucking bullshit like that it requires like the governor of a state to be like test the DNA. Right. Right. And that he's been waiting and there's been no answer yet. It's like what is holding it back? You know, I know why that's being held back. OK, so what's interesting about consumptive DNA is that depending on your jurisdiction, when they can test it varies. Because if it's consumptive DNA, that means they can test it once. So it could mean that if someone is arrested, they won't have had the option to perhaps file a motion in opposition to that consumptive DNA being tested because maybe they want a better lab or a different lab. Maybe they want to review that lab's practices to make sure they're reputable enough. And if you use all of the DNA and you complete consumptive DNA testing, then it does perhaps limit how strong a criminal case could be. That's true. 
And in some situations, they might even require like filing a motion in court to be able to say like, we want this done because it does kind of it hinders the prosecution in using that DNA as evidence. That's true and sad. And if you can't use it as evidence in the trial, you also generally like you can't use the things that you found from that, right? Like if you worked backwards, like we have his DNA, now what? All of that is absolutely true. And I hate all of it. (laughs) But I'm hoping like along with whatever they find out that perhaps some of the other evidence will also build a stronger case, like the boot print. And I think there's more evidence in there too, but it's just wild. It's just wild that like an answer is within reach. You know, like it can be handled. Well, and also from what it seems like, it seems like there's not only consumptive DNA. Like say they have, you know, multiple things that they can run samples on. Don't run the consumptive DNA. Run like what you have more of. Yeah. So one of CC's colleagues, Dr. Ellen Graytack, says DNA technology is much more intricate and more accurate nowadays, which makes sense. Traditional forensic DNA looks at DNA like it's a fingerprint. So you can match it to a database or to a suspect who's already been identified, right? And obviously that works if the person you're looking for is already in that database or is already a suspect that's been identified. But if that's not the case, that's where it leads to a dead end. Like, for example, CODIS, right? Like, it's not matching anyone. So they're just, we don't have anyone to match it to. Yeah. So that's where her and her team comes in. And they use the DNA in a different way to help generate new leads. And so I was watching an interview with her and they were asking like, well, what makes your work different from typical DNA analysis? And she had said typically in a forensic profile, they're looking at about 13 to 20 different spots in DNA. And her and her team, they're looking at around a million. So having more data will allow them to do more with the DNA. And I just thought that that was absolutely fascinating. Yeah. That like you could break it down that much, you know? I don't know. I was just very excited listening to her talk about it. We love a good lady scientist. We do. We do. We really do. And yeah, helping cold cases and like, especially Cece, like she's already solved 200, 200 cold cases. Get it, Cece. And like cold cases are the most difficult, right? Like they're just at a dead end. And she's just like, I got you. Yeah, like that's what I want to hear. And I I hope that the Ramsey family is another step closer to finding out what happened to JonBenet because it's just generally heartbreaking. But also we started our episode with Daniel Robinson, who we feel like hasn't gotten enough press and not enough people know his name. Yeah. And we're ending our episode with JonBenet where maybe she's too infamous. Because like, could you imagine we're like decades and decades later and you can't escape conversations about it and people being very fascinated by it. And I feel like Jean Monnet is the other side of it where it's like, oh, no, people talk about this too much almost. Well, yeah, like what the family's gone through, especially her father. Like I in one of the interviews I watched with him, he had gotten remarried a while back. And like even him getting remarried was like this big deal and people were still calling him like a child killer and like he's never been able to escape it. And also not that he wants to. He wants to find out what happened to his daughter. Yeah. Um, I know a lot of people still think that he is, you know, the murderer and perhaps I mean, there's still probably a chance. But like watching some of his interviews and how much he's fighting for it, my gut says no. Well, my gut says he wouldn't have walked out into the basement and carried her up. Yeah, that's true. But you would have been like, I don't know where she is. Let someone else find her. And then continued to act as though you did not know, right? Until Mm -hmm. police find her. 
Because why would you add your DNA unless your DNA was already there? But like people hug their fucking kids. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. But to me, that's the part where I'm like, you wouldn't do that. I would imagine. Yeah, yeah. And there's so many like theories and people of interest that people are like dead set on. And you could spend months dissecting it. <laughs> Looking at every single theory. Yeah, it's wild. But as you know, more information comes up, if anything happens with the petition, of course, we'll keep you updated in True Crime Digest. Absolutely. And again, if this is your first time at True Creeps, welcome. If it's not your first time, also welcome. We love you as well. <laughs> Absolutely. And with that, have a great weekend. Thanks for creeping with us. Thanks for listening. For more information on our sources, please visit our website, truecreeps.com. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can follow us on Instagram at truecreepspod, on Facebook at facebook.com slash truecreepspod, and on Twitter at truecreeps. We'd love for you to keep creeping with us. So if you like this episode, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the show with your fellow creeps.